So if you haven't been with us, we're in a series in the book of Exodus, and it's called The Journey. And what we're doing is we're following the people of Israel on their 40-year journey through the wilderness there in uh, the Sinai Desert. And uh, what, we're, what we're noticing is that uh, in the desert, the people of Israel learned lessons. So God could have taken them right from the Red Sea uh, into the Promised Land, but instead, God purpose, purposely uh, leads them into the desert because in every situation, in every trial, in every bad circumstance, they learn and they're changed and they're transformed. And we said that that's kind of a metaphor of the Christian life. The Christian life is a journey. And we are all uh, wanderers, travelers, and God is teaching us and transforming us in the journey. And so uh, we're looking chapter by chapter at uh, various events as they, as they travel. Now this morning uh, in chapter 17, uh, we're going to see a, a little motif in this chapter that you see all the way through the wilderness wandering. And it's a motif, you know, a motif is a, it's a literary device, it's a, it's a dominant feature or a pattern that you see kind of... Uh, uh, you could trace it all the way through a narrative, and you see this motif all the way through the, the wilderness wandering. You see it in 14 and 15 and 16 and 17, really all the way until they get to the promised land. And it's the motif of complaining, grumbling and complaining. And so over and over again, the people of Israel, we see them complaining against the Lord, and it's a pattern. It's something they do every, almost every chapter. And so every new crisis, their go-to response is grumbling. Now, it's, kind of, it's almost comical as you look at it. If it wasn't so uh, relevant to our lives, right? And I don't know about you, but I can relate to the people of Israel here. It's not just their problem. I know that this is my problem. I am somebody that, that grumbles and complains. It's sort of my go-to response to every problem, to every crisis. And for me, uh, one of the things that I think causes me to, to complain more than anything is when things are slow. I am impatient, I like things to happen immediately, and so if I'm in a restaurant and the waitress is slow or the waiter is slow, I'm, what am I going to do? I'm going to complain about that. What's wrong with this place? Right? If I'm, if I'm at, uh, you know, behind an accelerator challenge driver at a red light when it turns green, what am I going to do? I'm going to complain. What's wrong with you, Arkansas people? You know, how, where did you learn how to drive, right? You know, I'm going to complain when things are slow. Uh, I don't like unresolved problems, right? And life is filled with these where, you know, maybe you've got a, an aching back or, or some pain in your body and, and, it, and you should be better by now, but for some reason it just keeps on going on. It's chronic, unresolved issues. That's when I begin to complain. And so uh, this is not just them and this is also me. I have to admit that I'm a, this is kind of my go-to, uh, it's a motif in my life, if you will. Am I alone here? <laughs> I think that if, if all of us are honest, it's not just me or, and the children of Israel, I think that all of us struggle with complaining. I think it might be a motif in most of our lives. It might be the go-to response to the crises that you experience on a daily basis. I want you to take a moment, moment and consider how many things you complain about in a given day. Okay, this is you now. Okay, think about this. The weather, the traffic, your spouse... Your kids, your friends, your boss, the movie you saw that you hated, the meal that arrived cold in the restaurant, the sandwich shop that got your order wrong, the elevator that took too long, and the list goes on and on and on. So how many times do you complain on a daily basis? Now, as is the case with most bad habits, uh, it feels good to complain, doesn't it? 
There's a reason why we do this. There's a reason why it's chronic. It just feels good to vent, to get it off your chest, to complain to people. Whatever it is, when, when you sit down with your spouse or your friends or whatever, it feels good. There's something in it in you that feels like you're accomplishing something when you grumble about life. But like a muscle, when you complain, it gets easier and easier to do it again. Right, you, you kind of get used to it, your brain sort of gets used to it, and pretty soon you're doing this without even realizing that you're doing it. Right, it's a go-to spot, and it's so automatic that, that like a muscle, you start doing it, and you, you kind of just even almost forget that you're doing it. Right, this is the way complaining it is, and this is a problem. It's a problem because uh, if you read, if you do the research and you look into psychology, uh, you know, complaining, especially if it's a motif, if it's like a pattern in your life, it is really psychologically unhealthy. Okay, so I was reading this week, there's an author, his name is Trevor Blake. And uh, Trevor Blake, he's an entrepreneur, he's an author, and he writes a lot about uh, attitudes and attitudes towards life. And one of the things he says is, he says, when you complain, it literally affects your brain. It affects the chemicals in your brain. And so he cites, um, somebody's complaining right now. Um, <laughs> he cites uh, several Stanford University studies which show that not only does stress and complaining impact how our gray matter processes information, it physically peels away neurons from, from an important part of our brain called the hippocampus. Is that right? The hippocampus, and, uh, which is responsible for intelligent and critical thought, and it shrinks it. <laughs> so here's what he's saying. He says, when you complain, especially if it's a pattern, it literally shrinks your brain. Now, I don't know about you, but I need every single dendrite in this brain that I can get, right? <laughs> and this pattern of complaining, what he says uh, is that it actually, the research shows is that it shrinks your brain. Right, so this is psychologically unhealthy. It, it can become a pattern in our lives. But here's what I want you to see this morning, is that we can look at complaining as sort of a, a minor character flaw, can't we? You know, you, you know that you're doing it. Maybe you see it as like sort of a personality type. He's just kind of negative, sees the glass half empty. Or, or, or maybe you think, well, this is just a minor kind of an issue. It's kind of irritating to the people in my life. But it's not like one of the big sins, you know. At least I'm staying away from illicit sex, you know, and drugs, and, and I'm not killing anybody. I'm just complaining. It's not that big of a deal, right? Well, in the Bible, over and over again, we see that complaining is a deep, deep issue to God. The Bible all the way through is talking about what a, hor what a horrible thing it is to complain and grumble. And so, for example, in uh, Philippians chapter 2, <clears throat> There's this little verse where Paul says, do all things without grumbling and complaining. So whether you're, you're waiting behind that car in the green light, whether you're at the store, you know, waiting in line at the grocery store, you're dealing with a bad back or, or dealing with your boss at work, he says, do everything, do all things without grumbling and complaining, everything. And then in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, um, there's a place where uh, Paul the Apostle is talking about the, the wilderness wandering, the people in the desert, and about how they complained. And he says, don't do as the children of Israel did, because they, they committed idolatry. It's a bad thing, right? And then they, they defied the Lord, and they, they were committing sexual immorality. And then he says in verse 10, and don't grumble, like he puts it in the same list there, and don't grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Boy, that doesn't sound good, does it? <laughs> and so this is a big deal. 
This is a very big deal. We may view uh, complaining and grumbling as a minor character flaw, maybe bad for our emotional health, but for God, complaining and grumbling is a subtle, serious, but toxic attitude towards life and God. It's a big deal. I don't think there's a better place in in all the grumbling of, of the people of Israel than Exodus chapter 17. Because in Exodus uh, 17, we get at the root of their grumbling and their complaining. And, and, and God shows us why it's so bad. I mean, what's going on when you're, when you're griping and grumbling and complaining? Uh, Exodus 17 shows us uh, what, what is at the root of it and how we can get out of it. And so I want us to see three things as we go through the story. We're going to f- first see the crisis and then that caused the complaining. Then we're going to look at the complaint, why it's so bad, what's at the root of it. And then finally, we're going to see the cure for their complaining. So three things as we go through the narrative. <clears throat> so let's uh, look at the beginning of Exodus 17. It says, Now all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. And so first we see that the people of Israel there in Exodus 17, they, they enter a crisis. And this really is a crisis. So imagine, you know, you've got to picture them in, their, in your minds. They're heading to a place called Rephidim. Now, Rephidim literally means resting place. But as resting places go, it was a major disappointment. Because uh, when, they, when they get there, imagine the, these people. You know, there's thousands of them, and they're wandering in the desert. <clears throat> and their they're, uh, they're, they're, uh, nerves are raw. They're exhausted they're hot. They've been walking for days and miles. Uh, you know, the, sun, the, 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 the smell of sweat is sticking to their clothing. You know, the, the sun is beating off the granite rocks there that they're walking through. But they're on their way to Rephidim, the resting place. And they're just thinking, if we could only get to the, the Rephidim, if we, we could only get to resting place, then we'll be okay. And in their minds, they're thinking, oh, resting place. There's probably water there. There's an oasis. There's shade and trees. If we could only get there, then, then we'll be able to make it. Then we'll be able to keep on going. And by the way, this is the way I travel. I don't know if you travel like this, but if I've got a long trip, you know, say to Albuquerque where my brother lives, I, I think of it in chunks, right, in stages. And so if I can only get to Fort Smith, you know, if I can only get there, and then, then I'll be able to get some energy and keep on going. I'll rest and move on. And then it's if I can only get to Oklahoma City, then I'll, I could rest there, maybe spend the night, and then we keep on going. And then it's if I can only get to El Paso, not stopping there in the panhandle, uh-uh. You know, <laughs> anybody from El Paso, by the way? Good, okay. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I think of traveling in, in terms of stages. If I could only get to this place, then I could rest and move on. And this is what they're thinking. If we could only get to Rephidim, Rephidim, then we'll be okay. And they get there, and what they're expecting is oasis and water, and what do they find? More dirt. No water, no rest, just dirt. It's no wonder they're complaining. And so this is where, uh, this, this is the sort of crisis where complaints begin, right? Where you have expectations that are let down. When you're expecting one thing and you get another, right? Life is so hard and you've been going and going and, and it should be done, but instead of being done, something else drops in your lap. Right, or maybe it's hard and you're going and, and, and things, instead of getting better, they actually get worse, 
right, where there's this tension, right? This is where, uh, this is where when you begin to complain, when there are unmet expectations, unresolved tensions in life. You know, there's a myth that Christians live by, which is this. If I'm a good boy, if I'm a good girl, if I'm a good little Christian, then things will be the way they're supposed to be in my life. But the reality is, no matter how good you are, we live in a broken world. And the broken world is a place where there's always unresolved tension, where there's always a crisis, there's always another trouble. And if we're not careful, these situations will be the soil where we begin to grumble and complain. So that's the crisis. But but let's go on and look at their complaints because they did complain here. And uh, so they're they're there, they get to Rephidim, they find only dirt, you know, more desert, it's still hot, there's no water there. And it says, therefore the people uh, quarreled with Moses and they said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with, with thirst? And so Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Okay. So uh, here they are, they're in this crisis, and they complain. And you can't really blame them again. I mean, it's, it's one thing to not have water, have food, but they don't have water here, right? Without food, you can go a few days. Without water, it's a matter of hours, especially in the desert before dehydration uh, sets in. So this is not, they're not just having a bad day. They're in the middle of the desert without any water. And so they begin to complain. This is a very real thing that they're complaining about. And before we analyze the complaint, here's what I want you to see here, is that it's not necessarily the complaining that's in and of itself bad. It's what's at the root of their complaining. Did you know that the Bible makes space for a certain kind of complaint to God? The Bible recognizes that we live in a broken world, and there are times when there are honest questions when you are seriously in a, in a space where you're asking God, what's going on and I don't understand this? And the Bible has a space for authentic grum, uh, complaining and groaning before God. Did you know that in the Old Testament book of Psalms, these are prayers to God, uh, it's the, Israel's prayer book to God, there are different types of Psalms and by far the most common type of prayer in the Psalms is something called a Psalm of Complaint a psalm of lament, where the the psalmist, the author there, literally lays a big complaint before God and literally uses the word, I pour out my complaint before you. Right? The Bible doesn't want us to stuff or suppress our sadness. And the Bible gives us space to genuinely, authentically bring a complaint to God and voice our sorrow before him. And I hope fellowship can be a place where we can do that. You know, so often you come into a church and you're supposed to be happy all the day, right? How you doing? Oh, I'm blessed, brother. I hope that we could be a place where you could be authentic and honest about your sadness. Where if somebody asks you how you're doing, you could honestly say, I had a hard week and it's not going well. So it's not just their complaints that, that God is against here. It's what's at the root of this sort of complaint. There's an Old Testament scholar, his name is Tremper Longman. And he says, in the, in the Old Testament wilderness wandering, there are two words for complaint. 
One is translated groaning, and the other one is translated grumbling. And he says groaning is actually good. It's what the psalmist does in those psalms of complaint. But grumbling is bad. And he says, here's how you know the difference. He says, groaning is done to God. You complain to God, you groan to God. But grumbling, he says, is about God. And that's when it gets toxic. This is what God doesn't like, and you wouldn't like it either. None of us like it when people grumble about us. You know, if somebody comes to you with an honest complaint and says, look, I'm honestly struggling, and it seems like, you know, this is just not right, and you've done this, you know, we'll accept that. It's when people begin to grumble about us that we get troubled. And, and grumbling, this negative stuff here, is when we grumble about God. Longman says that, that groaning is always done on our knees, and grumbling is done in Israel in their tents. Right? They're talking about God behind his back. But, and this is what they're doing here. Now notice, uh, here's what I want you to see here. Is, and this gets at the root of what's wrong with their grumbling. They're talking about God. Moses looks at them and he says in verse 2, he says, why do you quarrel with me and why do you test the Lord? Now it's so easy to read over that statement and it seems like kind of a non sequitur. If you don't think it's a non sequitur, next time somebody is arguing with you, say this, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? <laughs> right, that sounds weird. What is Moses saying there? He's saying, listen, your complaints against life are ultimately against God. Your grumbling is testing. And what's so fascinating is Moses uh, renames the place. He says, this is no longer Rephidim, but it's called Masa and Marabah. And those words are, are in Hebrew, they are te- technical legal terms. This is at the heart of their grumbling. What they're doing is they grumble against the Lord here. Is they are bringing a lawsuit against him. They're putting God on trial. They're making accusations against God's character. They're bringing official judicial proceedings against God. They're saying, God, you're not doing right by us. And so often, this is at the heart of that toxic grumbling. It is a perpetual, uh, consistent accusation against God and what he's doing in your life. This was at, this was at the root of their grumbling. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, he says not that I, I am, I think, in danger of ceasing to believe in God. He says, here's the problem. He says, the real danger is, for, is coming to believe such dreadful things about him the conclusion I dread is not, is not so there's, there's no God after all, but so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. So it's in, when, when you're in a bad situation and you begin to perpetually grumble and complain about God, what's going on there is a subtle accusation against him, saying, God, you're not good. And in the story, what are they saying? They're saying, God, you're not good. You've let us out here, and there's no water. And they bring three accusations against them. They say, look, God, you are, you're, you've deserted us. They said, is the Lord with us or not? God, you're gone. You're deserting us. And then they say, they, give, they, uh, they uh, accuse him of malicious intent. God, you've brought us out here to kill not only us, but our kids and our cattle. God, you want to kill us. 
And then ultimately what they're saying is, God, you don't know what you're doing. And this is at the root of their grumbling. It's what John Owen said. John Owen has a place where he says, we are always tempted to to think hard thoughts about God. I, I was kind of thinking about my own life and I wanted to be vulnerable and let you know that, I mean, I said at the beginning that I struggle with grumbling and I was trying to think about a time or season in my life where I really struggled with this. And my mind went back to um, several years ago, I was in ministry and I had this job as a college pastor and I, was, I had a really rough, uh, I was there for about a year and a half and we had a girl in our group commit suicide and my wife got pregnant and we were struggling with money. We needed to do something and I needed rest and we needed out. And so I decided to take a job at, a, at an industrial supply company just to get a little reprieve from the ministry. And so I took the job, and in my brain, and my, my expectation was, okay, I'm going to be here at most for six months. I'll get some rest, and then I'll, go, I'll get back into the ministry. But at this job, six months turned into a year, and a year turned into two years, and two years turned into three years. And then I started to think, wait a minute, this is not at all what I expected. And I started to grumble. Not like, I mean, I wish I could say they were prayers of complaint to God where I was just <laughs> like the psalmist, you know, lamenting and offering that to God. No, it was the bad kind here. Where every day I'd go home and my poor wife, I would just complain about my job. It seemed like on a daily basis. And I remember it reached a head where I was, I was uh, at this job, we had uh, reviews from our supervisor every uh, month or so, and so I was in this review, and I was doing really poorly. My performance was bad, I wasn't taking calls fast enough, and she said, Brent, you know, you did really bad this month, but she said, I know you can do better. You know, if you really apply yourself and think about it at night and just really, you know, come at this job, and she said, I bet you could be the best sales agent on the desk. I remember just walking home from that or driving home from that and thinking, but I don't want to be the best sales agent on the desk. You know, I want to be in ministry. And I spent three years going to school for ministry, and this is what I've wanted to do ever since I was a kid. And this, I prepared myself, and I've got these desires. I don't want to be the best sales agent on the desk. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, it's a good job, and it was paying the bills, and I should have been grateful. But I found myself going to God and saying, God, you've given me desires to be in ministry. You know, you've given me, I thought I had a call and I thought I I spent money going to school for this and now I'm a sales, is this my life? And what was really going on is I was looking at God saying, God, you're playing a cruel joke on me. You're not doing right by me. And what it looked like on the ground was just going home to Anita Grumble, grumble, grumble. (laughs) Complain, complain, complain. And this is what's at the root of our complaints. This is why it's bothering God so much. And it's not because it's bothering God so much necessarily. He knows that this sort of thing is poison to us. Right? When a good complaint to God, this sadness and this lament dissolves into sort of a perpetual sour mood. 
where you are cynical and bitter at life, where God is in the dock, God is on trial, and I'm constantly testing him and saying, God, you're, you're not good. You don't know what you're doing, and I think you've deserted me. C.S. Lewis, when he, he, he <laughs> C.S. Lewis talks about hell, and in one place he describes hell as a perpetual grumbling. <laughs> Here's what he says. This is when it dissolves and becomes toxic. You could be living hell on earth, and this is what he says. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. You can repent and come out of it again, but there may come a day when you can, no long, you can do that no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on and on forever like a machine. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. In other words, he says, if grumbling becomes the motif of your life, and not the good kind, but this accusation kind. He said it will dissolve and it will become toxin, toxic and it will become hell on earth. You will be nothing but a perpetual grumble. So we saw the crisis. It led to this negative kind of complaining. Complaining is not always good. Sadness is healthy, but perpetual sour mood is bad. It becomes toxic. How do we get out of it? I would wager that some of us are dealing with it right now. I mean, how do you get out of this, this sort of toxic cycle? Well, let's see the cure. Let's see what God does. And I think what's so cool here is what God does, remember at the root of their grumbling is a, a mistrust of God's character. Saying, God, I don't think you're good. Notice what God does here is he wants to give them proof of his good character. And how does he do that? Well, notice in verse five, he goes on. The Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff which you struck, with which you struck the Nile and go. <clears throat> Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so, in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? <clears throat> and so uh, what does God do here? Well, God basically says this. You want a trial? I'm gonna give you one. And he tells Moses, do three things. He said, bring your staff. The staff that, that you struck the Nile with. And in that ancient culture, the staff was always a symbol of judgment. It was always a symbol of wrath, of God's divine justice. Take the staff. And then he says, I want you to take all the elders of Israel. Get all the elders. Now, why all the elders? Remember, this is, what's happening here is this is a trial. And these are witnesses here. God says, take the staff, get all the witnesses together, and then here's what happens. Now imagine this probably is pretty freaky. You know, here the people are grumbling and God gets up with, the, you know, Moses is there with the staff and all the witnesses are there. Notice what God does next. 
It says here that God says in verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock. Now, every other place, this is the only place where this happens in the Bible. Every other place, man stands before God. Only here does God stand before a man. And what's going on? God says, you want a trial, I'm going to give you one. And instead of, 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 you know, lashing out against the people and putting them on trial, they deserved it. God could have stood up and said, strike the grumblers, the people that lack faith. Instead of doing that, God himself gets in the dock. God stands on the rock, and God receives the blow that their rebellion deserved. Here's how one scholar, Ed Clowney, put it. He said, Israel would put God on trial. God stands in the place of the accused, and the penalty of judgment is inflicted. And in taking the blow for them, God was giving them proof of his character. He was saying, this is what kind of God I am. When you accuse me and want to put me on trial, I take the blow in your place. Now, I've got a friend who's a, he's a skeptic. He doesn't believe in God. And, and the way he always talks to me, he says, Brent, there may be a God, there may be not. But if there is a God, who's to say what he's really like? Well, I think Exodus 17 is one of the most beautiful pictures of what God is really like. You know, every other religion pictures a God who judges you as you deserve. That is how some people think of the God of the Bible. He's harsh, he's waiting to punish, thinking of fresh ways to find us doing wrong so that he could smite us down. Exodus 17 presents a God to us. He does not judge the people as they deserve, but instead he stands in the place of the accused and punishment is inflicted. They are the guilty ones, God bears the rod of judgment. God says, this is what I'm like. And this, was not, this would not be the last time that God stood in the place of the, in the, place of the accused. Centuries later, uh, Jesus Christ would take the blow for us. On the cross, he was on trial. He was taking the blow and the rod of judgment so that we could receive living water. You know, Jesus on the cross, when they stabbed him, what flowed out of his side? Blood and water. When they struck the rock in the wilderness, water came out, and they were refreshed. So in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, there's a place... 10.4, where the Apostle Paul commenting on Exodus 17 says this, the people of Israel, and I quote, drank from the rock and the rock was Christ. And so what was this? The people of Israel were seeing a tangible picture of God's goodness. Are you a grumbler? (laughs) I know that I am. When you grumble, you're you're asking the question, you're you're accusing God, God, can I trust that you're good? Do I know that you're good? And here God says, I am good. I will take the blow for you. 
And the way you, you can test God's character, the way you know who God really is, is not by looking at your circumstances or your unresolved tensions. It's by looking at the cross. On the cross, we see God's goodness. And by looking at the cross and, and really going into that and seeing God's goodness there, we find our way out of complaining and into a life of gratitude. So <clears throat> I'm almost done, but I've got a friend. Her name is Jennifer, um, Jennifer Jenkins when I knew her, but now she's Jennifer Naraki. She got married. She's one of those friends that I knew in junior high school, and we kind of had a time where we kind of lost connection, and then through Facebook and social media, we became connected again. And Jennifer recently was diagnosed with a form of terminal cancer. And she, you know, she's got three boys, and, you know, in the age of social media, you just see it all going down. And she's, you know, she's about 44, she's my age, and so every time I see her post on Instagram, I'm just entering into her situation. And in one of her posts, I mean, it was so, man, I found it so inspiring. She said, uh, you know, there's been a lot of tears these past few weeks, and she said, I'm saying goodbye to my kids, but she says, I know that God is good. What inspiring gratitude. <laughs> I mean, what, a, what an inspiring picture of gratitude. I mean, in the face of immeasurable suffering. But here's the question. How does she know that God is good? It's not by looking at her cancer. And it's not by looking at anything else in the world in her circumstances, it's by looking at the rock. The rock was Christ. It's by looking at the cross and seeing the God that bled and died for her. And if God tangibly displayed his love by doing that, you can trust his character. And you can live a life of gratitude. Now, most of us kind of face much smaller circumstances than that, but how inspiring that is. I mean, imagine if we could be a people that despite all of our crises and unresolved tensions and frustrations, we could be people who do nothing with grumbling and complaining, but do everything with gratitude. Where grumbling and complaining isn't a motif of our life, but something else is. Man, that could be so powerful. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come to you today and we thank you for... Uh, who you are and what you've done. We thank you for the story of the wilderness wandering that can, uh, brings us face to face with our tensions in life and the reality of our grumbling and complaining in the face of all these things. Lord, we pray that you'd help us, <clears throat> help us to trust in your goodness and live lives of gratitude. We thank you, God, that you've given space for us to groan and to pray psalms of complaint and lament, and yet we pray that that wouldn't dissolve into the toxic, perpetual, sour mood, Lord, the cynicism that we could fall into. God, I pray that you'd convince us that you are good because of what you did for us on the cross. Lord, you are the rock. The rock was Christ. And I pray that we would experience your living water. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.